The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Good afternoon, you are tuned to Resonance 104.4 FM. This is this week's edition of Isotopica with me, Simon Tishko. And today, we've got an extra treat, as always. I hope every Isotopica edition is a treat, because this week, the telephone rang. When I answered it, there was my dear friend, I'm sure many of you know her, soon-to-be professor, Jean Wainwright. She said, Simon, you've got to come over, bring your recorder. Gerard Malanga's in town. Yes, Gerard Malanga, the well-known photographer, poet, filmmaker, longtime associate of Andy Warhol, a man whose career started in the very early 60s and his collaborations with Andy Warhol led to some of the most amazing films and the culture-twisting output of The Factory. Gerard has photographed um, just such a wide range of people he's worked with and he has known such a wide range of people. Iggy Pop, Patti Smith, Mapplethorpe, The Stones, The Velvet Underground. There's him dancing on stage with whip in hand at the factory in the most glamorous 60s oh-so-so-so time. Anyway, Andy Warhol, on and on and on and on. The demi-monde of American and European culture. He's in town. He's staying with Jean. What can I do? But for Isotopica, I'll dash over with my recorder firmly in hand and we'll have a conversation. Let's see. I'm not going to say to him, tell me, Jared, what was Andy like? Because we've all heard that so many millions of times. We all know that Andy Warhol was the man behind the most important soup can in 20th century culture. We don't need to hear that. But what we will find out is how Gerard works as a poet, as a photographer, as a photographer, he is a poet and a filmmaker and an all-round Renaissance man. Today, sit back and enjoy conversations with Gerard Malanga. Gerard, what an absolute pleasure. I mean, what a treat. Um, well, I'm here quite by accident. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I had a uh, my sponsor in Glasgow where I gave this poetry reading, this uh, standing ovation poetry reading. Um, uh, well, I asked my sponsor if he could give me a stopover in London, so I'm flying out of London, not flying back out of Glasgow. Perfect sense. Uh, to see a very dear friend of mine who will be 102 in not, August. Not <laughs> not Jean here, not no, Jean here, no. No, named Wolf Shuzitsky. A beautiful name. He was a very famous cinematographer in British cinema in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and okay. maybe even 60s. Mm-hmm. And his most famous movie was Get Carter. I love that and, film. Uh, he All worked, time favorite. He did the cinematography for Get Carter. He also did the cinematography for, uh, you know, two dozen other movies. And he worked very closely with Paul Rotha also. And um, and I came here to see Wolf because he's a dear friend, and I I photographed him every time I visited with him. And uh, we, Gene and I, took him out to lunch. Uh, I took him the last time I was here. I took him out. To, we took him out to lunch, and this time also, uh, he and his wife. And uh, he's just a delightful soul and very inspirational and uh, moving person for me in my life. Beautiful. So that's why I I was here in London. Otherwise, I wasn't really doing anything except Gene and I have been shopping and and you know. <laughs> Traipsing around and, shopping, and meeting yeah. people, and meeting people, and we uh-huh. had lunch with Thurston Moore and uh, his lovely lady Eva today. And uh, yes, uh, and I, we had dinner with uh, 
Tony, uh, Tony, uh, Tony Gorman, uh, who's the publisher of Real Art Press. Mm -hmm. um, so he's, they're doing a, a, a museum catalog for my retrospective in 2016 at the Bronx Museum of the Arts. Mm -hmm. So the publisher is actually publishing, co-publishing the museum catalog for the show in New York. So uh, otherwise, I wasn't doing anything of any public note, like giving a reading or showing a movie or whatever. But uh, uh, the standing ovation with your poetry in Glasgow. Oh, it was an unbelievable situation. I uh, I talked first of all. I opened up the reading by uh, announcing to the audience that 2014 marked the hundredth uh, anniversary of the uh, writer uh, uh, Gavin Maxwell. I don't know Gavin Maxwell. Told okay, me, he was a nat naturalist writer, Scottish naturalist writer. Mm -hmm. uh, he he'd written many books, but two books, one of which was a, a bestseller named uh, Ring of Bright Water. Of course, of course. Okay, which actually Wolf Schuzitsky did the cinematography for the movie. Okay. So that was a coincidence when I discovered that, and then mm -hmm. I wrote to Wolf, saying, "Wolf, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in Glasgow, <laughs> and you, I discovered you did the cinematography for this movie, which I read, I read the book, I read the book out of sequence. Actually, I read the sequel first because I only discovered his work, I want to say, I don't know, four months ago, and uh, and not figuring that it was a sequel to a." a an earlier book, which I actually acquired while I was in Glasgow last week and mm -hmm. read the entire book. So I read the read them in reverse. <laughs> uh, and it was a very, so I made that announcement to the audience. I also announced that it was also the 100th anniversary of William Burroughs' birth. Okay. And um, so uh, I, I started either. the reading off and uh, mm -hmm. went, I told, I read for about 40 minutes and uh, I had, uh, they were applauding for at least two minutes straight, nonstop. Mm, beautiful. So I said, well, I guess it's time for an encore. <laughs> so I, I read a poem to my favorite architect, Charles Voicy, and, um, and they loved that too, <laughs> you know. And uh, so it was an in a very inspiring uh, time for me in Glasgow. And I got to see, the, we went on a tour of the College of Fine Art that Macintosh designed. Beautiful college, absolutely sensational. Yeah, yeah, quite that. I took some, sneaked in some pictures. And um, it, it was a great, and I met a very, a lot of, a few interesting people, including my sponsors. And I, I had three photographs in an exhibit, a group show that they had also in conjunction with the uh, Glasgow Arts International and in conjunction with my poetry reading. Uh, which they sold all three pictures. That's always <laughs> nice. Uh, yes, if, if my gallery will be very happy about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so uh, it was just a very moving time for me. And uh, then I caught the train to Glasgow, uh, um, ten o'clock Monday morning. And, to London. Uh, I mean, to, from London, Glasgow to London. Uh -huh. And uh, it was a, a very enjoyable ride. Uh, got to see the countryside. Uh, Trains are wonderful way of traveling on them. Uh, I do. I, I, I don't particularly like to travel too long on a train, but mm. I love train travel. <laughs> and uh, this train ride was only about, well, it was late coming into the station, but it was supposed to be like a four and a half hour train ride. <laughs> uh, it was on a Virgin, and I was flying, and they put me first class, so it was just really smooth. Smooth, ride. smooth, smooth. Yeah, 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 yeah. So.
when you, you talk, you, you say about it's coincidence, um, or not the coincidence, but with the cinematographer and the writer, that your life absolutely must be packed with it. There's no, I don't believe in coincidence, but the, the way, because the way you've lived and yeah. the work you've done, you must have come across almost every cultural reference point that I've got that's kind of formative for me. Um, you know, especially the early period you were working, and yeah. it's it's really nice. You you you've just been doing a poetry reading because one of the articles I read about you, I think it was in Paris Review, was just saying that all of your work is poetry. So you're talking about the photography, the photographic uh -huh. work, the film work, that everything is basically well, an expression of poetry in many ways. Well, I just want to backtrack to a point you made about the word coincidence because I think mm. of it as meaningful coincidence, which mm. is really the definition of the word synchronicity, which was a, a term that uh, Jung used. Uh, in fact, he wrote a beautiful little book called Synchronicity. This one's got sugar in. Oh, thank you. And, uh, <laughs> that was and, the tea uh, swap for the anyway, radio um, mm. Meaningful coincidence. Um, there was a point I wanted to Synchronicity, make. sorry, you were saying. Yeah, Synchronicity was the book that Jung wrote, um, which is a, a really a delightful book. Uh, and uh, it's, it seems like... I, I meet a lot of very wonderful people in my life and, met in, and so there's a lot of stories attached to these people which mm. become the subjects for um, the poetry that I write which are really, I want to call them picture poems but they're also story poems uh, about people that I, I, I've known and loved in my lifetime and people that I've maybe even never met but whose work I respected and admired mm -hmm. and I would be inspired to write a poem to a particular person. Um, also, I write poems about my enemies, <laughs> and um, so that's that's the oh about the, the I know what the point was that I wanted to make was that you mentioned that the that I'm involved with many different things like mm. film and poetry and photography and, uh -huh. and one of the one of the earliest heroes in my life was uh, Jean Cocteau, who did many things of course but he always and I think he said this somewhere about. Now, he always did this with the touch of the poet. So if he was making a movie, it was with the touch of a poet. If he was designing a costume for a movie or a ballet, it was the touch of the poet. And in, in a way, I kind of see myself very close to that kind of idea in a, in a way. It's, it's inspiring, you know. Mm, it certainly reflects in everything you do. I think it's that. Yeah, I don't, get, I don't get overly conscious about that. Uh, I just do it when I do it, you know, so... Um, you know, and uh, like today, I was writing something in my little notebook and <laughs> in the, on the on the on the tube, and she wanted to know what I was doing. And I said, "Oh, I'm writing a, a I'm sketching in a chapter from my memoirs." You know, so <laughs> at the spur of the moment, you know. So yeah, it's it's. I noticed that you basically you left art school to pursue your work as an artist, didn't you? Is that right? I, I I dropped out of college. College, okay. okay. <laughs> I did I did graduate with a New York State Regents diploma from art high school. Right. And I had a wonderful English teacher who was the the, the initial inspiration in my life. I, what happened was I was studying. I was at a vocational art school for art in New York City. Called, it was at that time it was called the High School of Industrial Art, and then. I was in the last graduating class, and then they were moving into the new building. And by doing that, they were also changing the name of the school to the High School of Art and Design. Mm. So I was actually in the last graduating class in the old school. 
and I had this English teacher in um, my senior year. Uh, I want I want to say that uh, I I I believe that I'm being guided by my guardian angel, whoever he or she is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, you know, I had signed up for an English class. I could have gotten any number of English teachers, but I just happened to get, I know where I was just going to take, I had to take the class, you know, it was a requirement. And I just happened to get this teacher named Daisy Alden, and she was a poet and a translator of the French. And, um, and the way she taught, I mean, she basically was just teaching poetry in the English class, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I was so far away from poetry. In fact, in the, my sophomore year in high school, I flunked English. I had to go to summer school for English. But uh, she was just such an inspiration. And I, at that point, I mean, I was being, I was graduating. I was being in school. I was being prepared to graduate to, I could have done one of two things, either go on to college or go into the workplace, which mm -hmm. is what the school was for, as a vocational high school. Sure, industrial so, art. Yeah, so um, I just made a radical change, and I, I said I, I, to myself that I wanted, I didn't, I, I just chucked the art, the art, uh, the, my studies, and I, I, I wanted to be a poet for the rest of my life. That I made that decision at the age of 16. I was going to ask the age, that's yeah, quite I was, powerful. I was 16 and a half, so uh, I didn't know about salaries or money or anything it was just i want to be a poet that's i recognized the secret language that i felt in touch with which was very inspiring and very magical and i i felt that i could do that and that's what i wanted to do and the catalyst was this tutor was this teacher, teacher yes yeah. my, my senior english class nothing teacher. in your family that kind of no we hardly it. had a book in the apartment <laughs> we had, I, had yeah. I still have my the original copy of my pinocchio book <laughs> and uh <laughs> And a book, of, a beautiful picture book of New York City from the early 1930s, uh -huh. which was also an inspiration for my photography later on. But uh, uh, I, there was there was nothing in in my background that uh, that was a hint of anything that would later affect my fate and determination of what would happen later on. So. Yeah, and the, the, you use the word radical there because it's, it's 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 a really major thing to do. But what what kind of year was that? What what year are we talking? We're talking about um, well, school started in September of 1959, mm -hmm. and I would say by October I made the decision that I wanted to become a poet, oh. and I even did a term paper in my English class. Um, I had her for I had Daisy Olin for the entire two semesters, so because um, she was also what they would call my homeroom teacher. Mm. And um, and I did my t my term paper on uh, Lotremont, and she gave me an A. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't read French or anything, but mm. uh, you know I, I, he was already translated, and he was kind of a peculiar character as a writer and, and very obscure. So I thought that he would be interesting. And it sounds like you're just really open, um, and you were you know able to make these intuitive leaps, the kind of radical leaps. There's well, that openness that a lot of people lack, I guess, <laughs> that they stick with what's well, known. And that's well, Daisy Daisy was the official translator for Malamé's Un Coup de Day, which was beautiful. The, the long poem, the last poem he ever wrote, actually, was mm. called The Throw of the Dice Never, Never Shall Abolish we Chance. Actually, we actually just did a big exhibition in Leeds based around that book with, oh, the, with the students. Okay. It was a curational exercise, right. so that's well, well, really back fresh in, in my back, memory. Back in the 50s, she had, was the, she had the exclusive translation rights from the estate of mm -hmm. uh, Malame uh, for that particular poem, and she taught that poem in class. 
in my high school class. I mean, could you imagine teaching a poem like that to high school students? Yeah, it's radical, really. And and so when we we talk about chance, as you say, uh, I think about, you know, the answer to that question is uh, that the... Something about... uh, What was the translation? Uh, Something about never abolish the hazard. uh, Never is abolished by chance. And so when I make those those decisions in my life, I'm basically stepping into an area that deals a lot with chance. Mm. So I don't really know what the outcome is going to be in my life. But I I sort of go along with the flow, (laughs) to use a kind of hippie expression. And... um, and that, that's kind of the way it's been for my entire life. I mean, when I, when I went to work for Warhol, I was only supposed to be for a summer job. I was supposed sure. to go back to school in September. And I decided by, and, you know, I, I kind of, I felt a little guilty about it, but I said to myself, <laughs> you know what? Hey, the students take a semester off. I could do that too. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did, I made that decision. Had I not decided to go to LA with Los Angeles, my fate probably would have been vastly different, I want to say. It's a, you're dealing with the razor's edge here. So um, it seems like I've always been making decisions that have seemed to be going, taking me in the right direction. Again, I don't really dwell on it. It just not. sort of happens. Mm. Uh, in retrospect, I can you know reflect on that. Uh, when, I was, um, when I was 10 years old, uh, I think it was 10 or 11, there was this uh, TV program. They would show movies every week, but they would show the same movie for one week. And then the following week would be another movie. And uh, it was a, it was a show was called Million Dollar Movie. And they, they mm-hmm. had the theme song, I found out later, although I didn't know it was the theme song at the time, but the theme song for the show was the theme from Gone with the Wind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in any case, uh, one Monday night, I did because they had some very interesting movies, and I used to watch that program quite often, and sometimes see it on subsequent nights even. Mm. And on this particular week, they had a movie called Citizen King. And Rosebud, Rosebud, I, yeah. I didn't know anything about Orson Welles <laughs> or whatever, you know. But I was watching this movie, and I was totally mesmerized mm. by this movie. And something happened. Um, in the middle of the movie where the newspaper reporter is interviewing Bernstein, who is who's the character based on, I believe, Bridget's dad. Um, and Bridget yeah, and uh, he's interviewing Bernstein about the meaning of the word rosebud. And Bernstein sort of like leans over on his desk and it's in the background, you can see the rain coming down on the window. And he starts talking about something else. He, it was a very elliptical moment in the movie where he's talking about that once he was on a ferry and he saw a girl standing next to him and he wanted to say something to her and he didn't. And he the, somehow the, the, he missed the moment, as it mm. were. But he said to the newspaper reporter, he said, not a, not a moment has gone by that I haven't thought of that girl. Okay. So, anyway. It ties in very nicely with everything you're saying. <laughs> so ye- I realized years later mm. that what I felt at that moment, seeing that scene in the movie, anticipated my becoming a poet. Mm. It couldn't be anything else. You seized the moment. Uh, well, I saw the I saw my soul, as it were, uh-huh. you know, and somehow carried over into discovering poetry for myself. Uh, I want to say five, six years later. Six years later. Mm-hmm.
It's beautiful, and and I'm very intrigued by this idea of working as a photographer, as a poet, as well. I mean, I, I know you, yeah. you know, as you say, you don't dwell on it too much, yeah. and it's it's really important not to kind of be didactic well, and nail it down. You know, but it's it, a beautiful notion. It relates to the rosebud moment, actually, mm. also, but. At the age of, well, I was always fascinated with, with elevated trains and subways when I was a kid. Sure. And um, when I was, re it was, I think I was already 12, it was, I was reading in the newspaper that uh, my favorite train ride, when I used to, my parents, my mother used to take me down to see my pediatrician in Manhattan, because I lived in the Bronx, so we took a, a, an above ground train ride, which was the 3rd Avenue Well, and it, you know, it was, a, it was the last L in New York City, actually. And I read the newspapers. They're gonna, they were going to tear down the whole section from where it ends in the Bronx down all the way down to uh, you know the South Ferry. Well, I was kind of devastated by that. Mm -hmm. You know, like my 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 favorite train ride is going to disappear. <laughs> so um, the book that I had acquired called Metropolis. It was a black and white picture book that was actually published in the early 1930s. Um, I had gone to a I was taking an art. I was taking an art class at the the neighborhood YWCA, and the uh, the, the teacher who was teaching the class. This was after school let out for the sure. day. My parents wanted to keep me off the street, so I was enrolled in this art class. And she had this book called Metropolis, and I would instead of working with clay or doing something in a sketchbook, I went off in the corner and just was like completely immersed in this book, you know. At the end of the end of the, the course, I charmed the teacher into giving me the book, <laughs> which I still have. Anyway, nice. Um, when I when I heard about the that the the Third Avenue was going to be Third Avenue was going to be shut down, in a way that book inspired me to be, well, inspired me to take pictures. The plan was I wanted to take photographs. On the it was the last day of the Third Avenue. <laughs> So school let out. My uh, I got home at I don't know three fifteen whatever, and my I was too young to do this on my own. So my father had to escort me, mm -hmm. and we walked down to the L station. Uh, this is in the Bronx, of course, and we took it all the way down to 125th Street in Harlem, and we got off. And I and I we got off the train. I knew exactly where I wanted to take the pictures, but it had to be on the way back on the return trip. Okay. Um, we got off the train, we walked down the stairs onto the street, it's 125th Street and 3rd Avenue, and I took my first picture of the train station. Then we walked back up to the platform, this is now the Uptown platform, and the train comes roaring in, and we get on, and somehow I found out in the course of all this that this was the last train going uptown. <laughs> Okay. Any, it was basically closing down the system as it was advancing from yeah, station yeah, yeah, to station. Yeah, yeah. We could have missed that that train, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got like we made it. So we got on the train. It was and it was packed with rush hour people going home because mm. it was already, I want to say, f uh, four thirty in the afternoon, five o'clock, and we got in in the third car, and I needed to get to the front window in the front of the train. I needed to do to do the pictures, otherwise I was not going to get what I wanted. And I'm 12 years old now, okay? I said to my dad, I said, I'm going to the front of the train, I'll see you later. And I scampered through all these people to get to, from the third car to the first car, and I got to the window, and there were newspaper photographers from at least 
three or four different New York newspapers <laughs> there. And they saw me with my little brownie camera, and it was like the parting of the waves. That's beautiful. And they just saw me, and they just made room for me, and I got right up to the glass. And the train had already started, but it didn't start where I wanted to take the. I was lucky. I got there in time, and as soon as I saw where, because I knew the, I knew the line by heart. I knew sort of where I wanted to take these pictures, yeah, yeah. and so I clicked away. I only had twelve pictures on the camera. Okay, so I basically clicked off twelve pictures. We got to 149th Street, so that was fine. Uh, I had the film developed. They looked, they looked really good. Uh, from my perspective, and then, but now the plan was I needed to go back several months later because my idea was to get the L structures in a kind of dismantled state, like a, like a Roman ruin, and uh, but I didn't know when that that could be occurring, but it was in October, so it was from May to October, the line shut down in May, so we got down. So now my father had to take me down there. We went down down there on a Sunday early afternoon. The neighborhood was completely empty and desolate, and I clicked off another, found the locations from the ground this mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and because uh, we walked, we followed the line to the Holland River, and I clicked off another 12 pictures, so I got two sets of pictures, and, but I was a little kid, you know, I wasn't thinking I was being a photographer or anything, it was just, I did these to have a, a, a keepsake, a memory of the L, which was the only way I could figure out how to uh, have something tangible mm -hmm. you know and so I did that and then uh, I took a few more pictures in the neighborhood I was doing pictures of lampposts and various things but not a lot and then as a little kid I lost I lost my because I wasn't thinking I wanted to be a photographer I, I kind of let's say lost interest in what I was doing and I went on to other things mm, you should do it that age yes. and then I came back to it in the uh, mid 1960s when I was working with Warhol and then a few years later, I took my first official portrait of the poet Charles Olson for an interview I was doing with him for the Paris Review. Okay. And that picture can't pick. And I only had two pictures in the camera left. I, I remember reading this. You you thought the camera was jammed. That's right. <laughs> well, I, well, I didn't know how to get the film out of the camera. Too, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't my camera. I was mm -hmm. totally unfamiliar with it. Uh, but I, I was very lucky to get that. It was out of those two shots. Uh, the other one was okay too, but the vertical was the perfect shot. It was in perfect focus. And um, and then I proceeded to do the interview with Charles Olson for the magazine. I also shot movie that that day. I was also already shooting movie film, so mm -hmm. I, I brought a 16 millimeter camera with me. So, but it was the f the photograph. And the reason why I took the picture was because in the Paris Review, that when they would run an interview with the subject, the, the author, the poet. They would run maybe a pencil line portrait of the poet or a mm. photograph, something like that, and even a manuscript reproduction. So that's why I borrowed a friend's camera and, and made that portrait. For, well, if I'm doing the interview, I'll take a picture of him also. And it, it, that was the beginning of when I, I took photography very seriously. And content, so I like the idea. I said, "Well, I should do. I should really document more poets and course, yeah, more yeah. poets." But then it got to be not just poets, but uh, you know. Have, um, you, have, have you still got the train photographs? Do they still I exist? I do. Yes, I have the That's negatives. Amazing. That that yeah. I'd actually really like to see those. Yeah. Those are going to be in the Brooklyn show. Yeah, yeah. you're, you're show. describing a fully, fully made 
piece of conceptual artwork there of going, taking the end of the train and then going back months later. And you were doing that 12 years old without yeah. any, instinctively, you were there for Yeah, that. I had nothing, it was all intuitive. I had, yep. I had nothing to compare it with. There of was, course. There was, you know, there was no reference points except my own imagination. And, uh, yeah, those pictures will open up the retrospective at the Bronx Museum. Good. That, that really yeah. makes sense. And there'll be texts with, the, with this exhibit because my work is based on series and periods of my life, so there'll be like little introductions for each section. When, when is this exhibition going to be? Uh, not until 2016. Okay. Yeah. That's really something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. And you're yeah. working on that already, I guess? Well, a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, but as time goes on, I'll be more involved with that. Mm. Yeah. And so where did you go? Where, I mean, we've said poetry as something that informs everything you do and you started yeah. taking portraits of people where did you go with your photography then where where were you at with your work as an artist at that point or were you well, just kind of overwhelmed with the flow because at this stage it was a very fast flow wasn't it we're talking mid-60s new york well the, the olsen picture was taken in 69 okay the earlier pictures were in the 60s that was a collaboration i did with warhol called screen tests so basically it was a preparatory situation for Andy as well as myself because we what I was doing was I was shoot we were shooting movie film of a subject a person a three-minute film portrait mm. and then I would go through the film on the with the movie scope and the winders and I would find like two or three frames that I thought would be nice to blow up as a still photograph sure so I would tie a piece of thread through the sprocket hole nice. to indicate to the analog. lab person where you're going to make the negative copy negatives from, but I, but the instruction was that once we there was there's also a notch, a clipper on the movie scope that you could just make a notch on the other side of the frame yeah. to indicate where the frames would be, and but then he would remove. He, I told him to remove the thread before making the photocopy of uh, the copy negative, which he did do. So then I was he was able to create the four by five inch uh, copy negative and then from that I was able to blow up photographs uh, I'd have a photo lab do that mm -hmm. so that in a sense was a, a, a very much a preparation situation for Andy as well for me especially um, it was a learning process so it was kind of a going in reverse instead of going from still photography to movies I went from movies to still photography yeah. and uh, using motion picture as the as the basis for a still photograph. Yeah. You know. Um, and then I did when I did the Charles Olson picture in '69. That was when I was shooting with 35 millimeter film. So um, at that point, I just used the still camera as my uh, my tool for creating the work that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And and where when you sort of look back. What's the richest area of your work, would you say? I mean, is that, is that a silly thing to say? Well, something you know, it's always for me the most recent work. <laughs> okay, that's absolutely natural. You know, the poetry. Uh, yeah. I've, been, I've been writing ferociously for the last uh, almost 15 years, a new, new kind of poetry for me. And I've been really thrilled at, at what's been coming out, you know. So uh, I never know when the muse is going to strike anyway. The of muse course. is very fickle. Mm -hmm. you know? On the cheap train. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hmm. Um, you know, I usually, I like to write in the morning, actually, uh, sitting in the cafe with a cup of coffee and a newspaper, and I'll be writing on the newspaper, actually. Yeah. You say a new kind of poetry. What, what, 
houses. Well, like these story poems I've been doing. Okay. I call them picture poems. So. Uh, but they're story poems, too. They were mm -hmm. basically all story poems, in a way. Do you want to read an example now? I could read. That would uh, be... For how long? <laughs> We've got, we can edit, but I mean, yeah, you just I keep can, going. I, I, I selected three poems. Please. The three very recent poems. Okay. And, um... And the, these are these are the last three poems I read in Glasgow at my reading. So okay, have these been published yet? Or? Well, the first two will come out in a very distinguished, prestigious magazine called Poetry Magazine mm -hmm. that's published out of Chicago. And the last poem hasn't been... I haven't found a, a magazine for it yet. <laughs> but the first poem is called Corne it's, uh, Cornelius... Dot, 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 and then Cornelius... Cornelius Gurlitt. How tired are you? How benevolent the cause for those slim, aching moments of blinding obscurity. And the blinds drawn and the sunlight louvered until even the knickknacks cling to their dust as to time passing, passing, if even that. The yearning to be not bothered, to be passed on the street. The rehab, the food mart, the many shop window reflections. So many times the eyes averted in fear. So many times you remain obscure even to your more obscured self. A silence charting your whereabouts at the many roundabouts, the tenderloins forever unnamed. Even the sounds of the half-painted trams remain silent in passing, their wheels grinding yet silent, the rain silent, the accusations even more silent. Or the friends who never talk back, clouded in darkness, the landscapes drifting, the equestrian trots drifting, all the genres mixed up or simply misplaced, the memories gone blank, the mundane measured in hours, minutes or decades, intervening, descending. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful. really beautiful. Renee Gresham, widow of William Lindsay Gresham, 1909-1962. Perhaps it was just another break-in some years back, or the charm that suddenly seduces out of nowhere, long rehearsed, till you've realized too late that half your living life went walking straightway out the door into the noonday glare of some Sunday godforsaken place somewhere down in central Florida, the so-called widow state you thought was safe, which at the time still remained obscure, so obscure, in fact, it was almost dark when you awoke, and so unlike yourself as in a manic haze rifling through those drawers for letters, tchotchkes, so much else. So you'd suddenly been had. There are times when the human frailties let down their guard. There is a ring of fire, Dante, so numbered, named for those who prey upon the old. The kids, all grown up and living somewhere else. And you're left alone, stumbling down the hall. It could have been a friendly call at first, a friendly knock, a slight accent adding to the charm. A friend of a friend of a so-called friend, no time to trace that noonday glare of sunlight as a halo 
for that added touch. Have you forgotten anything? Anything. This is called Heaven Bound. I've been assigned the afterlife. So I go out looking for it, all bundled up. It's winter. Not a sign of snow around. It's amazing. I've gotten this far, finding myself a desolate stretch of a highway somewhere in the Bronx, somewhere near the Sound, choked with weeds and debris. The wind whistling with patches of God's light to sh shining down. A little girl stops me singing, la, 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 la. Are you okay, mister? Oh, yes, I am. As I turn the corner and I'm gone. But the, they just come to me, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm just writing it out. And uh, then I type it up on a typewriter, and then I make a file for it on my computer, and mm -hmm. then I print it out, you know. So. It goes through all the things, but you've got a real life typewriter. I have, I have, I have three operating typewriters besides my computer. Uh, one in the office, one in the dining room, and one as a backup. <laughs> They're all Olympias. Okay, the classics. Yeah. Classics. So, for me, they're the best typewriter ever made. And In uh, fact, there's a, a wonderful film, um, a Warhol film, of Gerard reading out from his diaries and poems called Buffering, which has just um, come out in a, a book uh, called Warhol in Ten Takes. And um, I wrote the chapter with, with Gerard, but what was so moving in the conversations that I had with Jared for the book and also just the whole background of it was to to understand, read his poems and see that magic and see also this incredible engagement with Warhol in, in the film mm -hmm. as well with Gerard. It's just Gerard, you know, it's about Gerard and um, a love relationship. It's the longest poetry, on, poetry reading on film. <laughs> really? How long is it actually? Uh, the film is 33 minutes. That's nice. And I'm reading yeah. my poems and diaries. Is this colour or black and white, the actual it's film? It's in colour. Okay. How long were you working with Warhol on and off? About seven years. Okay. Yeah. That particular film is, is very special because it's it's a very much a dialogue between Warhol and Gerard and you can see just the way Gerard is lit, the way he's engaging with Gerard through the camera, through the camera lens. And if you like to continue, Gerald, because there's some very interesting censorship that's going on in the in the film with the camera. Yeah. <laughs> in what way? That's a very that's a contentious mm. word. Tell mm. me. Well, uh, if, if the idea for the film was mine, because um, I was supposed to make a film that, that I was I bought the film footage and I was going to make a film with this uh, uh, young girl that I had was having a romance with, or it was after the romance was over, actually. And uh, and she had I was told her I wanted to make this movie of her and she agreed to it and that like I don't know a day or two before we were gonna meet in Central Park so I could shoot the footage, she cancelled that on me, so now I'm left with this raw this can of raw film right, so I got Andy to use it to film me reading from my diaries and poems about her, 
And so Buffrin is the, really the pseudonym for her name in the movie. So whenever her name would appear, I would say Buffrin. But because <laughs> I did that, I had to change everybody's name to Buffrin. So I wouldn't uh, make a mistake and, and you know, names would stop popping nice, up. You know? Nice, so, uh, But it was done in a way that, uh, you know, I was, I was concealing I, the identity of the person, but in effect I had to conceal everybody's identity. And at one point I made a mistake, actually, and I mentioned, instead of saying Buffering, I said Andy. <laughs> you did, you said Andy, and also what happened was, as, as Jared reads out, quite intimate, you know, starts talking about their relationship together. Mm -hmm. Warhol gets clearly more and more agitated behind the camera, so he starts strobing, he starts cutting, doing strobe cuts on the camera, stopping the camera. Just by what he was saying, because okay. there's a jealousy. I mean, the whole chapter is about there's a kind of jealousy there that uh -huh. on Gerard part. on Andy's part yeah. about Gerard and relationship with somebody else. Mm -hmm. So, in in fact, it, it's a very interesting portrait of Warhol making a film with Gerard and their relationship. <laughs> getting, and then Andy getting involved emotionally. <laughs> getting involved, Andy gets involved emotionally in the yeah. film. So just unpicking all that and having the privilege of of knowing who the bufferings were, who the people yeah. that have been censored and talking to Jared about it, but it also gives huge insight into Andy's emotional engagement with somebody that obviously he was working with incredibly closely, yeah. Gerard, and um, all the little details that come out and, and the little game playing uh, that Warhol was doing with Gerard and, and it's just it's just very fascinating the whole the whole film. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a very unusual movie for Andy because uh, uh, his other films, you wouldn't really see him get involved, but of you, you clearly see what's going on. Sixties yeah. that time, it, it particularly interests me. From my brother was a photographer in the sixties, and I was uh, nine, ten years old when I was sort of like swinging sixties London, mm -hmm. nineteen sixty-eight. Mm -hmm. Sergeant Pepper's, Jostics, pop, you know, fast cars, models. I had a brief glimpse, but he died in nineteen sixty-nine, oh, so it's kind of there. But I'm looking at it again academically. I'm, yeah. I'm going to be doing some studies and yeah. just the different periods it was such um, we think of the 60s as a revolutionary period in mm. many respects yeah. and there's been I've, I've kind of thought come on get over it let should we get over it but the more I look at it the more I believe that how do you feel looking back on that time compared to the 70s the 80s the 90s and where we are now because it's politically the state of the world all of these things as an artist yeah. how how does that feel to you well it, it, it as an artist, personally, it doesn't. It hasn't really affected me that much. I can only say that I feel that I'm writing the best work I've been, I've been able to write now, mm -hmm. rather than back then. When I look at it in retrospect, uh, but um, I think what was happening in the '60s was uh, things. There was there was an interaction between different mediums and people and the arts. Uh, and I want to say that's almost impossible, or it hasn't really happened as much as it was happening back in the 60s. So things were less compartmentalized back mm. in the 60s than they are now. I think everything is very much separated now. I mean, back then, you know, the poets were involved with the, with the filmmakers, the filmmakers mm. were involved with the painters. I mean, there was a real social interaction, both creatively and socially speaking that I want to say doesn't really happen that much anymore. Mm. You know? So the dynamic is different in mm. a way.
I kind of see, kind of come to this idea that where we are, almost sort of politically and socially, culturally, <laughs> sorry, that's my phone going off in the background there, it's, it's still, I'm kind of drawing a line, maybe this is me straw, yeah. uh, drawing an academic point out, but mm -hmm. we're almost still experiencing a reaction to the 60s, that the 60s threw so much up in the air and f kind of freaked out so many people yeah, in many well, respects. It was a very revolutionary period. Exactly. I mean, as a drug culture, yeah. as a creative culture, yeah. <laughs> I mean, pop art, it was invented in the 60s. Yeah, it's yeah, basically yeah. A, a, to mirror what was happening in mm. the 60s. Um, you had LSD, you had, uh, you had anarchy, you had student riots, mm. uh, you had the war in Vietnam. Um, uh, you had issues dealing with poverty uh, in the streets uh, amongst pe poor people. Um, you had fashion shows. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's just across the board. Yeah. It, it's 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 one of the things in discussion with with colleagues and friends. You know, one of the things to talk about is that the sixties couldn't happen now. I think, uh, in in so many respects, it would, it would kind of be illegal. It, it, it you know, there'd be so much proscription around uh, that degree of radicalization. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. Actually, I think it's it's become very much more. Restricted, I think that has a lot to do with uh, the separation. Uh, there's a greater gap between the classes mm. in our society. There's a greater gap between the poor and the rich, yep. uh, which seemed to get, had been, it was shrinking back in the 60s in a way. Where, it very much. And it also allowed people uh, to, um, to be self-efficient in terms of making better lives for themselves back then, and I think now it's become much more difficult. Yeah. Um, the the word greed seems to be something that stays with me in terms of what's going on. Well, we see we saw greed with, with with Reagan and Thatcher is 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 a time when you had that main thrust to oh yeah for in the eighties and. This this is kind of what I'm putting together. This notion that the the groundwork that you had post World War Two yeah. that you had I mean Europe was just such a socialized state. You had yeah. you know a real kind of form of socialism and taxation that shifted wealth much more evenly across. And as a, and the sixties was kind of a result of all of those. You know so many areas. Mm -hmm. The fact the children of the people that fought World War Two mm -hmm. and then the wealth that came afterwards. Yeah. And so we know all of these factors that seeded it. And, and as you say now, it's it's gone back pre. You know. The, well, the, the, I, don't, I don't know what the, what it was like in pre World War Two. Mm. <laughs> Although I could fancy, I used to fantasize about you know living in Paris in the year nineteen ten. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think we've all very, done that, Jared. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think it was a very romantic. Well, you know, nineteen ten from when uh -huh. I was in high school, nineteen sixty. We're only talking fifty years. Sure. And now it's it's, it's over a hundred years. <laughs> Later, but uh, I think also what happened in the in the sixties that it, it, it allowed people to um, to follow a, a way of self determination in terms of mm -hmm. of uh, I think what also was what created after World War Two is that we, you had a very very strong but very honest middle class. So in effect, uh, you, people were able to. Um, make a living, earn their livelihood, uh, raise a family, uh, be comfortable with what they were doing, um, 
and it, it seems that that that's kind of been suppressed in a way. And yeah, it's it's harder. I think everyone's really struggling now. Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone's struggling, which means there was there was an article recently just talking about modern slavery in terms, okay. Okay. whereas there was much more of a freedom. Then you could go from job to job to job. You could stop. You could kind of hang out, yeah. but much more difficult. I think there's something that that you did say, Simon, and you touched on Gerard about about the cross fertilization. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. at the Judson Church dancers, the poetry readings, the the music, you, the, the EPI, the, all these things kind of conflating and one moment you're doing one thing, another. So this, this whole kind of almost hyperactivity of all these things happening mm -hmm. at once mm -hmm. and being a perfectly kind of synergy of the things happening together it yeah. wasn't like they were put in different places and i think that's what you're talking about really because if you think of those diaries the diary you mm. kept mm. for the year um which was very interesting because one moment you know you're you're making a film in the factory with wall the next you're doing something with the screening the next you're going to a poetry reading you mm. know and all the people that were cross-relating i think was was really fascinating. It's a pressure cooker, a cultural mm. pressure cooker. As, as there must be film. I hope there's film of you dancing. To, Lots. Is, 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 I'd love, to, I'd love Lots. to see. I think, okay. I think that, well, there is a little bit of you mean uh -huh. dancing with the velvets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <coughs> it's beautiful. By I the think way. there's a little <laughs> bit of film that exists uh, in a film that Jonas Meekus made. Yeah. And, oh, Meekus, well, yeah, and fantastic. Somebody else shot some footage of me dancing mm -hmm. in the factory, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, it may have been Danny Williams. It was Danny Williams, yeah. And then somebody actually made a movie using that he shot of me. Actually, I became the focal point. Although it was a, it was a Velvet Underground gig when we were performing in Chicago for a week uh, by um, who's the filmmaker? He lives in Sweden now. So he's been there for many years. But he made this movie, mm. and he used the Vel Velvet's music as a back soundtrack new, for the new, movie. A new, Newman. Um, Oh God. Yeah. Anyway. Was, yes. I've, I've, yeah. I mean, I know. No. I mean, yeah. I, I know we the guy very well. Afterwards. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, those, I are have... the, those are the three movies that I could say pinpoint. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about documenting me dancing, those are the three. It's just, it's just a lovely it's image. Much, as, as part of this great cultural cross fertilization, you dancing in the middle of it was a beautiful image. Um, but even more than that, in the actually, I've just. Another chapter in a book. Just another chapter in a book. Ronald Neiman. Good. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. And we'll we'll look it up in yeah. a minute because. But in uh, I did a Namath, chapter on um, it was called Mediated Pain, and it, it's about the EPI. And I did a lot of background um, research into Gerard and the performances, and some of them it's just brilliant. He's dancing with two torches. There's strobe lights. There's mm -hmm. coloured lights. The whole thing. The whole kind of extraordinary setup and what you were doing in the whip dance and mm -hmm. the whole you know it was very very interesting actually because I mean you had a background you you had danced hadn't you professionally yeah. as well I didn't well I was I'm sorry <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> no, I, um, no one told me <laughs> well it was very simple but what happened was uh, shortly after I started my senior year in high school I uh -huh. ran into a friend of mine on the street of course an old girlfriend and she said oh um she knew that I liked to dance, so um, she was on her way to this TV show at this TV studio not far from my high school, um, and the show was Alan Freed's The Big Beat. 
Okay, yeah, classic. And uh, I became, she brought me on the show as a guest, and I, that day, became also a regular dancer on the TV show. So I was able to go back also on my own mm -hmm. after school let out because it was just down the, you know, 20 blocks away maybe. But because uh, the, the TV show was live, although it was kinescoped. And um, kinescope, that means filmed? Well, the kinescope was a very kind of, I want to say, primitive process of documenting TV shows. Uh, what they would do is they would, they would have a live TV camera film. Uh, Tele, you know, connected mm -hmm. for live transmission into people's TVs. Yeah. But so by doing that, they would have a TV, TV screen on the side, you know, television on the side, and with a, I think the way the process worked is that they shot movie film off the TV screen. Of course. And that created the kinescope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was the the only way that they could document a live TV show. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would have to have a movie camera. In the studio, and that would that could cause maybe distractions or mm. um, sound disturbances or whatever. So that's how they made kinescope recordings. Okay. So what what have you got planning? You've got the retrospective coming up in 2016, and I work do. work wise, what what, what, are you, two, what are you excited about at the moment? Well, I have two books coming out this year. One is a, what's called a chapbook, which is a small book of poetry, mm -hmm. uh, and it's called Tomboy and Other Tales. And um, it's just seven poems and my only piece of fiction. It'll be in the book too. And that's and, contemporary. You've written the fiction recently. Uh, a, a year ago. Okay. And uh, the other book is a quite a big book actually, and it was started mm -hmm. in 1970. It's my my translate uh, selected translations of these Peruvian poets, Cesar Vallejo. And uh, this just last year, I met with a publisher who was very interested in bringing out this book. And so we, we said, okay, that, let's go for it, you know. And uh, so I was working with a, uh, a, a young girl that I met with her husband in New York uh, quite, quite by accident <laughs> uh, last summer. And they're from Argentina, so she uh, somehow got, I must have talked about this in conversation or something, and she said that she would like to help me with the translations, to re reconstitute the translations, to make them better than what they were. So we were able to do that, um, and so that book is it's 83 of Vallejo's poems, and it's it's, it's going to be the first book that will have, uh, that will be illustrated with at least, uh, I want to say, eight or, eight or ten or a dozen photographs of Vallejo throughout the book. Okay, when was he writing? Uh, he wrote in the uh, 1920s and 30s, and he died in Paris in 1938, and he's buried, he's buried in Montmartre Mont 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 Cemetery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually, I gave a poetry reading in 19, I want to say 1991. Yeah, buried, no, 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 not, not Montparnasse. Oh, Montparnasse. Montparnasse, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Montparnasse, And uh, so I gave a poetry reading at, at his gravesite. It took us about an hour to find it on the map. <laughs> yeah. I was with a bunch of people, but it was 1991 and we found the gravesite. And I gave a reading at the gravesite of my translations of his work. And he... He was extremely poverty-stricken while he was living in Paris. It was, it was a lot of suffering for him, and he ended up dying there. And um, there's one very famous poem uh, uh, where he's walking through the streets of Paris in the rain, you know, you know, just looking in shop windows and looking for a park bench to sit down on or whatever. And just as I'm reading that poem, it starts drizzling. <laughs> 
It was a great day, but all of a sudden, of all the time for that to happen, it was just kind of really weird. And then we had to run across the street to a cafe to get out of the rain, you know. Uh, anyway, that book is coming out in the fall, in, I think in October or September. It's called Malanga Chasing Vallejo. Nice title. The Selected mm. Poetry of... Mm. Uh, and then the publisher came up with that title, actually. Mm. And I said, yeah, I love it. Let's go for it. Okay, okay. The selected, selected Poems by uh, translated by Gerard Malanga. Uh, so that's book, that book's coming out in, I don't know, sometime in September or early October, I'm not sure. So that is those two books that are, two titles that are coming out this year. And you've got the parish, you've got some a show in Paris? Oh, I have a, an exhibit. See, I forget. I have my press uh. agent here. <laughs> she, keeps me, she keeps me alert. <laughs> I have a, a, a show, I'm, I have a gallery in Nice that's my exclusive uh, European agent. And uh, she's arranged for an exhibit. I just found out about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, uh, she's had some connection with a movie theater mogul in France who owns a lot of movie theaters, mm -hmm. including Paris. And uh, one theater he owns in Paris supposedly has a library attached to the movie theater. Okay, I didn't know that place. Yeah, I don't have the name for it myself. Yeah. But uh, anyway, the show will be on in the library. It's, and the show will coincide with the Perry Photo uh, Convention in Paris, yeah. which will be in, I don't have the exact date, mm -hmm. but it will be mid-November. Mm -hmm. So there's that, that I will be in my, so I'll have a show up for that, and the show will be included in the announcements for the Perry Photo Catalog. And then so. your monograph for your show, but that'll be a bit later. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. like 2016. Yeah. Busy, busy, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to book my Eurostar seat in November already. <laughs> oh, be I'll be there. I'm going. When's oh. the preview? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know how long the show's going to be up yeah. for. Uh, it, I don't know if there is a preview. I'll ask uh, my gallerist. We'll make one. We'll make one, Gerard. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Good. Well, look, thanks very much for your time. Oh, it's sure. It's an absolute treat to discover you here in London. And... Um, uh, We've got an awful lot of material for yeah. our resonance yeah. listeners who will be uh. avid, avid, avidly interested in what you've been saying. So thanks very much for your oh, time. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Jean. Okay. Jean Rainwright, who's uh, hosted us here today. I'll give you more details at the beginning and the end of the recording because I'll edit that later. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to say? No. I was just going to say I'd like to take you both out for dinner now. Dinner now. Dinner now. Dinner now. Dinner now. Dinner now. You have been listening to Isotopica. This is Simon Tishko. This is Resonance FM. This is an art radio broadcasting station. I'm in London. Where are you? You've been listening to Gerard Malanga today in conversation with Jean Rain Wainwright. God, I struggle with that name, Jean. I do apologize. And me, Simon Tishko. Um, Links, details, and all sorts of things will be available on my website, being www.theculture.net. Follow the links to radio, and um, there's also details there of uh, future projects, future broadcasts, previous shows, and all of the many, many, many issues which deeply affect you as an independent listener of Resonance FM here in London town. Um... 
Lots more to come. Please join me, same time, same place, same space, same fabulous station here on Resonance. Next time, the show will be repeated at some god earthly hour for those ungod earthly American listeners of ours out there. How are you doing, guys? I know it's all fine. Once again, this is me, Simon Tishko. I thank my guests, I thank the station, and I thank, if only there were a god, but thank God there is no god. Today, we've ended in a paradox wrapped up in a puzzle because that's just kind of the way we roll here on Isotopica that's allowed to everyone else on the station thanks for listening tuning in same time same space same place next week this is me Simon once again going round and round and round and round and round and round and round in Isotopica circles bye for now This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.